Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In our mid-month show, we talk with composer and music producer Rupert Christie about his career and his work on the recent box office hit, Fisherman's Friends. Then we turn to our monthly roundup of movie news. Jeff will talk about local actor Richard E. Grant's latest movie. I will be talking about a horror film which has been made mainly in Gloucestershire and Graham, not to be outdone, talks about lots of upcoming horror movies. After that, Elijah returns and we discuss another screen classic. This month, Psycho. Graham and Neil are already looking worried with our horror-themed show. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci fi and comic book movies. And my name is Neil, and I just like films. Okay, guys, before we get on with the show, there are two issues I have to talk about. One is the low output last month, and the other is the elephant in the room. If you mean Jeff, just say it, Graham. <laughs> Fair point. Large, wrinkly and grey. Yeah, it's you, Jeff. <laughs> Thank you, our very own rejects from the Jeremy Carl Show. Like Jeremy, they also have long, empty days to fill. <laughs> I digress. Let's talk about that delay. I had all these jokes I was going to bring up for this show, and as time went by, I forgot them. That's old age, Jeff. Be thankful you've made it this far. As I said, we had reduced output last month, and that is because one special project, which is coming next month, the podcast about the documentary, Stroud's Secret Suffragists, took more time to create than we had originally planned. It is, however, something I'm very proud of, and when you listen to it, please let me know what you think. We have an even larger project coming, which has been in the works for some time. More details on that when we get ready to release it. Thank you to all our contributors to Stroud's Secret Suffragist, which is The Life of Margaret Hills. We learned a lot creating that podcast. A special thank you to Graham for the tremendous editing job he did. Let's get back to that elephant, Graham. Does it mean Jeff's going to pack his trunk? <laughs> That was terrible, Neil. (laughs) Jeff couldn't have come up with a worse joke. The other issue, which does relate to Jeff, caused a lot of listener feedback last month. Listeners have said they felt Jeff was very angry in our previous review show. Angry? I was bloody livid. Firstly, I had to review two superhero movies, and then the best film of the month, Dragged Across Concrete, was dismissed by you two like Jeremy Kyle looking at a normal family. Admit it, you were wrong. I was almost emotional from the constant barrage I received from the shouty red-faced man in the corner. That was you, Jeff, in case you were wondering. And by the way, thank you for reminding me of Vinny there, Neil. However, this is probably the perfect time to bring up some feedback from our Marvel vs. DC podcast. It hasn't been out long, but it's already generated a lot of comment. Now take this from Darren on Twitter. One of the presenters seemed down on Marvel because they make mega money and called them fan service. Ooh, I wonder which presenter that was. I do agree with Darren when he says, I think Marvel are just giving fans the payoff that they have earned for supporting them for so long. Wise words, Darren. And if you're available later in the year when we do our follow-up show, we would like you to join us. Okay, enough banter. Let's get on with the show. And do we have a coup for you this month with our interview?
Our film of the month in March was The Charming Fisherman's Friends. We really liked this British romantic comedy built around an unlikely group of fishermen folk singers. If you haven't seen the film yet, it is available on streaming and DVD in July and at the flicks strongly recommend it. After seeing the film, we were very fortunate in being able to chat to the film's composer, Rupert Christie. Rupert not only created a charming score for this film, he was the producer who brought these wonderful singers to a wider audience. Let's go over to Jeff and hear what Mr Christie has to say about the film and his soundtrack career in general. Over to you, Jeff. Hello and welcome to a very special At The Flicks interview. Today we are here with composer, producer, mixer orchestrator and writer Rupert Christie. Hello, Rupert, and welcome to the show. Hello. Did I get all that right? Yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> now, Rupert, wearing his producer hat, was the man who saw the fisherman singers in Port Isaac and worked with them to create the hit album Port Isaac's Fisherman's Friends. So if you look at the film, which I accept is a fiction, but essentially, Rupert, you're the Daniel Mays character of that film. <laughs> to some extent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of uh, poetic license in the story. <laughs> There's quite a lot in there, I think. <laughs> but the the premise that I, I uh, discovered the boys as, as such, I did a lot of work for Decca at the time, and we were looking for artists, and, and Decca were generally creating projects that that didn't really exist as such. So you'd put together, a, you know, military wives or whatever. Yeah. My manager at the time, a guy called Simon King, and I were, were like, there must be something out there that's actually got a bit of PR angle and is interesting and has got, you know, some credibility to it, but is real, isn't isn't a constructed band. And I used to go to Port Isaac back in the day, so I knew about the boys, and I was like, there are these fishermen down there, we should go and have a look at them. And we popped down and saw them, and they were as good as I remembered. So it really is like in the film, they would sit down on the on the quayside oh, and, yeah. and just sing. Yeah, they've been going for about 30-odd years. There's nothing to do from October till March in Port Isaac, so <laughs> everyone just goes to the pub and sings. It's really impressive, the stuff that they do. It's got a real earthy, folky quality to it. All of those little anecdotes and things in that process sort of spun into the film script. The manager of The Boys... A guy called Ian Brown was very involved in the film. Yeah. In fact, it took nine years to get that film off the ground because the album nine was years. nine years ago. And they it's gone through various transformations, script rewrites, different people owning the script and the licence. Went through Ealing, which obviously is no more. Yeah. So it was re-bought by a finance company and then bought back off them. So it's taken a long time to happen. It's cool. <laughs> worth it. it yes, exactly. Fun. Well, that's the thing that's so amazing is it's yeah. like it's done brilliantly at the box office now. Yeah, um, it's going to be one of the biggest British films for the last ten years. That is excellent. It's great. Film. And it's amazing that it takes ten years to convince people mm. that it's yeah. that it's worth doing. And we've got a lot of American listeners, and they keep saying to us, so "When's it coming out here?" I don't know. Keep checking. Yeah. Well, they'll be in the process of selling the film on, so and different distributors buying buying in now, so. Yeah. Shouldn't be too long. Yeah, and, and it is the type of film that goes down extremely well in America. Yeah, exactly. It's got a real flavour of England in it to yes. it. So what was it about <clears throat> The Fisherman's Friends that you remember and you went back that, that captured your interest to think, these these guys are really good? 
the boys have got a, as it as comes across in the film to some extent, the, the boys have a, there's a certain quality to the singing, which is, it's somewhere between the sort of power that you get at a, a rugby match, that kind of rugby style, yeah. everyone giving it their all, really believing, but believing in it. You never really get in any other form of singing, people properly going for it. But then they've also got some harmonic skills as well, so <laughs> unlike your usual yeah. rugby crowd. Yeah. So yeah, there's, the there's a real, you know, middle ground between that where they've ultimate power and then, you know, some musicality as well. They're all, they all sang in local choirs and various things and they've all got pretty, pretty good voices. But also it's that blend of human voices where you go and, you know, I work with a lot of choirs and you're taught, you're taught to sing so your voice doesn't stick out. So everyone has the same tone, everyone, and it blends into a wall of sound. Whereas these guys, everyone sounds like an individual. And individually, when you're miking them up, you're like, crikey, how are these going to work together? I mean, properly different voices, but as a blend, it's just beautiful. Works really well. And then there's the, I think the crucial thing with the guys is a real sense of humour. They're, um, well, there's there's the humour in the songs. A lot of them are quite bawdy and quite funny. Yeah. Um, the way that they present them as a show, as a sort of live element, is half the half any gig is them taking the piss out of each other. And John Cleave is a real um, orator, so he sort of gives it the gives it a real sort of story behind things and explains stuff and takes the piss out of each other. They've been together in that village since they were born. So apart from Johnny Mac, who's who they call the outsider, and they're always like, "Oh, don't trust him. <laughs> he, he's the outsider." How, Johnny, how long have you been here? Oh, Fifty years. <laughs> Um, but it's that group of group of mates that you have when you're, I don't know, eight. Yeah. And then you all move away and you never have that relationship again. Well, they've got exactly the same relationship, so everyone's the same. No one's ever grown up and the relationships are the same. So there's the guy who never steals everyone's sandwiches. There's the, there's the bully. There's the guy who gets bullied. You know, <laughs> nothing changes. So it's a beautiful little thing to look at and enjoy. In the film... Daniel Mays spends a lot of time organising them uh, before they go off to the record label. In real life, what was it like? Well, when I'm down with them, then, yeah, there's a lot of trying to wrestle them into recording, which generally involves getting them just just pissed enough. (laughs) And they all drink different amounts, so you have to kind of balance this terrible sort of... Yeah, there's a a graph somewhere, pints versus... Musical skills and it curves like that. Yeah, but they're all at different points on this curve, so you have to make sure everyone's drinking just enough to get them in the get them in the sweet spot. In the, the sweet spot, of the bells exactly. Right. And it has to be the right beer, obviously. It has to be St. Austell, otherwise it doesn't work. <laughs> if you slip in a Foster's in there, it's not going to happen. So that that scene in the film where they're all in the pub and you've got the and the, the you know the, the grudges with the villages and all that—that's spot on there, no? So yeah, it seems fabricated, but the whole all of those things are very real, very very real. It's quite funny. No, they've got a manager who is very very involved in the film, a guy called Ian Brown, who's a real. I mean, he's a, a real powerhouse. It works as a consultant with Ireland Records and various other things, which is why they signed to Ireland right. and not Decca, who I took them to originally. But they're both, they're both under the umbrella of Universal, so things move around. But Ian is, back in the day, he was a pig farmer, and that's given him all the skills he needs to work in the <laughs> record, record and film industry. 
I'm all right. Uh, and yeah. he's, he's brilliant. He's involved in a lot of me- films at the moment. He, he was involved in Wild Rose as well. Uh, have you seen that yet? No. no we, this, we, next week. What a film. Yeah. I'm hoping to see it before Avengers takes over every bloody screen there is in the country. <laughs> oh, Wild Rose is a class... Class oh, act. Every, everybody I know has seen it raves yes, about it. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Her, she's really oh man, she's amazing. Her voice is ridiculous. Yeah. Jessie Buckley, can't recommend her enough. What a singer. I mean, really funny in that, you know, we work with lots of singers on various projects, and I can't think of anyone who could, could replace her voice. I mean, she's, mm. she's really astonishing. Like, like, truly astonishing. And all that stuff we did for the film was live, live vocal takes. You know, proper, proper stuff. Um, anyway, back to the fish. <laughs> there, uh, um, yeah, so Ian Brown is the guy who can handle those boys. There's a, there's a certain amount of psychological warfare as well, you know, giving people in the band enough control to move the other guys around. But they're, you know, it's like trying to herd cats, generally. So again, you've got that sequence in the film where they go to London and they're all supposed to be resting. They just go off and do their own thing down the pubs. I mean, that was dialed back, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the truth came out, they'd never work again. <laughs> an absolute nightmare. So you said they sort of... I know you had the, the one overarching Universal and then it was Ireland or Decca. Yes. Was there a lot of... Uh, around that or was it yeah I, I mean I took them through to a few there's a few labels that deal in in either heritage acts or or crossover things and in fact a lot of the labels there was a period where they were all very keen on um, having a few th- things like that on the books but there's a few labels that really succeed at that Ireland have a, a part of their label that does Decker are very good at it Warner and particularly East West and Rhino both have a really strong angle on that sort of stuff and I've done similar things with Sony and uh, Mercury as well. Ian had direct links to Ireland, and it made it easy. Um, and that record did brilliantly. I mean, Ian's yeah. an absolute master of PR. So things like the things that came out in the film about the million-pound record deal—that all happened. That's a real bit of paper, newspaper really? frontage. Yeah, I mean, you know, the million—the the million pound deal is, you know. Is uh, definitely a poetic license as yeah. far as deals go, but that bit of PR was amazing. So they had, th- I think, there was a point where on the harbour, all the three major TV lorries were down there. So they had the BBC lorry with it, with its sort of satellite gear up, and uh, ITV and Sky for a whole day. So you couldn't switch on any channel on TV without seeing about the fisherman being signed. So it was an absolute stroke of marketing genius from in. And it's become the biggest selling folk album of all time. Sort of British folk, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, folk is British to all intents and purposes, all you know, UK based. So yeah, it's been it's been it's done brilliantly as far as that's concerned, and it's spun into other records and various advertising campaigns and stuff. But above all, the boys are all fishermen or potters or. Writers, it's hard work getting them away from that. You know, it's like, oh, well, no, I've got to throw, I've got to throw twenty pots today. Can't possibly play the Abbey Hall. <laughs> here's here's some Saint Austell beer. Was it? Is it tribute? Tribute? Tributes there. Tribute. Yeah. I mean, I like yeah. Tinners, and they've got one called um, yes, like Proper Job. Oh, right. Which is yes. a which is usually served in wood wooden casks, which is a beautiful beer, but it's slightly too strong. <laughs> It tastes amazing, but then you they realise you it's five point something or other. So the the album comes out big hit, yeah. and as you said, it, then nine years of potential we could make a film with this. Well, in that period, the boys have done other records and they play 
Glastonbury a few times and Albert Hall and various other things. So, you know, the machine carries on and they're still gigging and doing stuff and I go and, on the whole, go and make records. When there's a label behind it, I make a record with them. I think I've done four or five records with them. So every couple of years we do it, spin out another record and they sell multiple thousands on the plat uh, on the seafront when they're gigging down there. So we had nine years, various albums done and the films going on. So when the film was starting in the early stages, the pre-production, were you involved from that stage? Yeah, we went down and recorded material that we thought would be used for the film. We recorded it with the boys, with the idea that... I mean, I've worked on quite a few films or with artists where we've recorded supposedly live stuff, and it's always pre-records. I mean, no-one records anything live. It's always mind to picture. Even, I mean, I've done big TV specials or live shows at festivals or uh, um, stadiums where a lot of the stuff is pre-recorded. Even the drummer's not playing live. Because the audience expects a certain level of stuff. It's once people have started, the public expects to see something, then if you don't do that, there's no justification. You can't say, oh, but they're actually playing live and the thing that you thought was live wasn't live. It doesn't wash. So it's more and more like that. I mean, um, similarly with tuning vocals... You rarely hear a vocal these days that isn't tuned. I mean, I'd say less than 1%. Wow. People expect that, yeah. and when they don't hear it, they go, oh, that guy can't sing. It's like, well, actually, he's the only person who is singing. So back to Fisherman's Friends. Did you work quite closely with director Chris Foggin? Was he on board when you... Or, or were you there before he Chris was taken on? Yeah, no, no. Chris and I discussed how we would approach it, and all of that sort of turned around on the on the... Once the film started, really, the idea was that, that everyone was going to sing to the Fisherman recordings. And in, in most cases, they did. Um, but partly due to just locational stuff and the, the turnover and the, the budget, which was tight. It's a, it was quite a, it was, this was done on a shoestring to mm. me, which is why it's even more impressive the way it's turned out. And, and uh, I mean, I think they did it for a mill and a half which is very small budget, really. Tiny, tiny. tiny budget. And you've got you know, people like Daniel Mays, James Purfoy. Oh, and great and, actors. Yeah. I mean, that helps if you've got some actors yeah. that are really yeah. solid players. Yeah. And then the script writers and producers, a guy called James Spring, production companies, Fred Films, I think, and he's very, very experienced, used to work at Ealing, very clever guy. Didn't they do Finding Your Feet? The yes. Bigger before, and, that and then the, Meg Mystery and Nick Moorcroft are the two writers and, again, producers. They were very involved in the direction as well. Um, and they're a power couple. Yeah, they know what they're up to. Between them, they may have done 30, 40 films. And then James has done at least that, if not double. Foggin, though, he was wet behind the ears, was brilliant with the actors and really worked on that side of things. There was a nice sort of sharing of skills as it were. Well, we do three main reviews a month and Fisherman's Friends was one of ours. And, and one of the things that struck us, well, a couple of things that struck us with this is Daniel Mays is not your traditional leading guy for a romantic comedy. No. Which I think really helped. Great actor. And I think that really, you were on his side all the way down, down the line on that. What was brilliant about him was he made the comedy work. Yes. Because yeah. he had this sort of like look of complete yeah. disbelief for the whole thing, yeah. which worked brilliantly for me. I, um, he was the real foil against all the jokes. Yeah. yeah. And without that, it would have been hard. If you played someone who didn't have that kind of character and, and face, really, I think you'd have had a real trouble with the, with the plot. And, and there's something about his eyes. is a real tenderness there. So, you know, when he's fallen in love with the place, fallen in love with the woman... 
you believe it, you go with it. The the sort of the way that he he turns native and in the film and falls in love with Port Isaac, that happens to everyone who goes there. So the whole film crew will like keep keep going down there on holiday now, and everyone's yeah. everyone's moved in. <laughs> I think some of the investors have bought houses down there. It's ridiculous. It's one of those sort of places mm. that once you go and see it, you're like, right, that's it. See you later. <laughs> I'm here. James Purfoy's from Somerset, isn't he? Originally, yes. I think it goes down there, but. He's normally the, the strong guy or, you know, the more traditional leading man. But playing the part he played, I thought, just brought another string to his bow. Yeah, it was good. It had a really nice balance. Often these sort of romantic comedies, you get the demographic is heavily weighted in favour of women or heavily an edgier film and it's heavily weighted in, for the male audience. I pitched it pretty much right. Mm. It's right down the middle. So mm-hmm. drag your husband down to the... The cinema, he's not, he doesn't go, oh, my God, you owe me one. (laughs) I've taken that for the team. You know, it's like everyone walks out really enjoying it. It's a gentle, it's a gentle film, but it's, it doesn't make you feel bad. Well, I've yet to come across, I don't know about you guys, I've yet to come across anybody who hasn't liked it. And I think that in this day and age... You know, that's that's pretty good. And I believe some of the fishermen were in the film as well, in that the quiz night. Uh, I think all of them were in there. There was a few there. little little scenes where, cutaways where they're walking around the, the corner or they were in the pub for the quiz, yeah. yeah. Um, they, have a, they have a quiz down in um, Port Gavin, which is the next bay, and they're all really clever guys. We, I, myself and my assistant, a guy called Sam Burden, who I use on most projects, Whenever we're staying down there, if we're there over a Sunday night, then we head down to Port Gaven with the boys to do a quiz. Can't get anywhere near it. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're proper, proper quiz masters. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think I think a load of them did did the eggheads thing. Oh right. Yeah, they're punchy, <laughs> punchy quizzes. Is it like the singing? Do they have certain beers and it goes like that as well. <laughs> yeah, and, um, yeah, there's a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> Your incidental music in the film, which I think is fantastic, and we've been listening to it on the way down this morning. Great. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it was tricky to find a... Um, as with all film, there's always a bit of a committee. The people who have the concept of the film, the writers, the producers, the director, and in this case you've got the artists as well, and the label are very heavily involved, and the publishing to the score, which is a new business model, which has been around for about five or six years... Financial firms are buying publishing in scores because you can you can pretty much guarantee a certain amount of return, and then it has an enormously long tail with yeah. TV and and yeah. streaming forever. Mm-hmm. So as long as you're repaid your initial investment on that first bit of cinema, then the, the tails run forever. So it's a quite a good investment. So people are buying publishing, and the publishing was sold to another Universal label. So there's a lot of people very interested in the score before I even write a note, who've got a, an idea about what they want it to be. The concept was that it was going to be much folkier than it ended up being. I have done a lot of work with people like Bellowhead and uh, Faustus, who are quite gritty mm. English folk, very traditional. So, And that was probably where my head was at initially, as with the music supervisor. There's always a compromise between that, what the label want, and the demographic of who's going to go and see it. And that folk stuff would have given it a very gritty edge 
but we've already got that with the singers. Yeah. And it needs something a little bit gentler and a little bit sweeter to tie it all together and really to keep out of the way of things. So there's a couple of themes that are very reoccurring and re- rearranged throughout the thing. There's a there's a, a love theme that develops between Danny and, and Tuppence, his character, um, Alwyn. And then there's a sort of Port Isaac type theme, which is like the, the locals that runs through. And that's the Welcome to Cornwall, Cornwall theme. Exactly, Welcome to Cornwall theme. And it, it appears in various forms yeah, yeah. throughout that. And yeah, there's a real sort of, there's a lot of times where there'll be a big sea shanty and the timing will be all over the shop and some of it's been done live on the ship and we've got to blend that with the fishermen singing and tie it back into sounding real and having some power. And then that has to go into the score. So there's a lot of transitional stuff that needed to be seamless, which is always, I mean, in that kind of musical... I mean, it's it's almost like a traditional musical film, like a Mamma Mia or a... uh, Yeah, we're going to be coming on. Don't choke. Give them the Heimlich. Yeah, Yeah, the the Mamma Mia or um, what's been out recently, the... the, um, Greatest Showman. Greatest Showman, yeah. Yeah. Although that's very pop-based and there's much less transitional stuff. There's a lot of this stuff around because it's making huge amounts of money. I mean, outselling all the music industry stuff. So they're putting out big albums and then The Greatest Showman... Mm was number one in Britain two Christmases in a row. I mean, that's yeah. unheard of. Yeah. And ran for 12 weeks in the theatres. Oh, yeah. unheard of. Keeps exactly. Back. Just keeps coming back. Yeah. Never dies. Along. And well, then going to sing along. Well, no, all the, all the big pop writers are now making musicals. Max Martin, who's the big American writer, he wrote all the Britney Spears and uh, uh, Taylor Swift singles and The Weeknd. Basically, every... Number one single for the last ten years has been pretty much Max Martin, and he's doing a musical in London. So his musical, I think, it's called "And Juliet," and it's starring a girl called Cassidy Jansen, who's one of the sort of contemporaries of Jesse Buckley. Yeah. So they're very interlocked. Although Cassidy's very much on the theatre stuff, but she was she was the lead in the Beautiful musical, which was the Carol King. Okay. Musical. Uh, I don't know if you saw that. No, I haven't. I saw it on the telly. I didn't see it live. It was, it very, was, very good. It was brilliant because it was one of those musicals that you know I don't know a lot about Carol King other than Tapestry. But what was beautiful about that musical is you saw all her previous writing and she wrote for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. And funnily enough, partly to do with that musical, but partly because I, I've known her before. But Cassidy and I have just finished a record for BMG, which is like a. She's a. She was always a, a singer, songwriter when I knew her before she went into theatre. And we've done a record that's coming out, which is a sort of Joni Mitchell, Nora Jones style thing. It's, she's utterly brilliant. But she's, as I say, she's the lead in the next Max Martin musical, which will be a Shakespearean thing with pop stuff. See that now. That's interesting uh, uh, about the whole musical thing. And I know we're digressing, but I, I'm fascinated in this point. One of our themes at the moment is the whole thing of streaming versus cinema and Netflix and that. And I just wonder whether this is an area that Netflix isn't going to pick up on and cinema will pick up more on it. It's hard to do it in a series format. It's because you need so much music. Yeah. And music takes a very long time to put together, to construct, more than it seems shoot picture. Because shooting picture is almost a live thing. Yeah. Whereas putting music together is never recorded live. It's always constructed. So it's like animation and that takes a long time. I mean, obviously, Glee was a good example of a, of a TV show that did work or that for him. But they didn't have a lot of songs within each show, maybe two. Yeah. And then all these musical films have 20 songs. 
So you've got a lot of music to put together. It's like doing two records. And, you know, back in the day, bands would take a year to do a record. Yeah. So to do 20 songs in, in less than six months is pretty hard, go- yeah. hard going. Glee's quite interesting because, to me, I only saw a couple of episodes of it, but that was the recycling of fame from the early 1980s. Yes, well, Same that's... Sort of thing. I mean, the way that they got away with it is all those songs were covers. So you're not, yeah. having, to, you're not having to write the best song ever. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're yeah. using a cover. Yeah. Um, so where, where you get into the... Something like Wild Rose, those are most of the tunes are original songs. And same with the Fisherman film, most of those songs are... Well, there are covers in there, but they're re completely reimagined and there's some, a lot of original stuff and it makes it a sort of reasonably slow process because you're trying to write stuff from scratch that suits the film and you know you know some records these days they'll have maybe 200 songs to get down to 10 songs so there's a lot of throwing throwing things away so you've got the added complication of the songs and Fisherman's Friends, then you're writing a score, which, as you say, you've got to complement it, but in a way that it doesn't rub against it. I mean, that must have been... Yeah, yeah. it was tricky. And, the, and due to the sort of process of the film, it's been quite a drawn-out process. I was on it early and then writing score whilst they're editing. So every time you, you write a piece of music, they've cut yeah. three frames out or <laughs> in, in a very slight way. You know, we've cut three frames out. Music doesn't line up. No. No. And it's not about, I can't just cut three frames out of the music and stick it together because yeah. the tempos have to match. So you have to rewrite the whole section. So it's a complete rewrite. But, that, but they, that's the, the curse of the film composer is that there isn't, there's a real disconnect in understanding between the editor and the directors and what, how do you create that music? And it's like, yeah. well, music's locked to a, yeah. a groove, a tempo, mm-hmm. which is why most film scores aren't beat-driven, because the moment they're like, and you cut three frames out and throw it away, that no longer works. (laughs) And the other thing is, as these film composers go from film to film, they might recut it, and they're not available, because they're contracted somewhere else. Exactly. So if it's orchestral, you can do do brutal cuts and join things together, and the tempo can move and, and flow. With pop stuff, it's very hard. This score was quite interesting because there are there are quite a lot of beats in there, but then there are sections of just sort of tempo moving instrumental stuff with no no groove, so that it can manoeuvre around the edit. And there were a lot of edits. We were meant to finish in October editing, or the score was delivered in October for the mix, and they were still editing through till the end of January. So I had to just keep, over Christmas, I was still editing and rewriting stuff. They filmed another 20 minutes of picture over, over November. And then they, they want another 20 minutes of music out of you. There was, quite, there was some serious stuff in that, yeah. Yeah, so it's quite, it's quite tricky, especially if you're doing other things. If you're working on a new record, it's like, oh, well, I better not sleep then. <laughs> so last year was intense. I didn't get much sleep. What sort of instruments did you decide to go for in, in, when playing the score? Well, there's, again, it's sort of budget-driven, but there was some strings stuff, and I've got a couple of players that I use that we, I record in my little studio that are fantastic players play every string instrument, so we can track things up. But it was a very delicate, small score. It wasn't meant to sound like a symphony orchestra, so there's a few strings in there, and some of it's doubled with synth strings, so you can blend those two okay. sounds, and it can be quite convincing. Uh, in fact, all the, even the big orchestral scores, they blend 
a 90-piece orchestra with synths as well to make it sound, like, really thick and powerful. Because the synths are now based on samples, is it? So it's yeah, they're just samples, mm-hmm. yeah, and it just thickens up the tuning and it yeah. sorts things out and gives it weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a little bit of that going on. There's a lot, quite a lot of guitars, a guy called Simon Johnson, who I use as a guitarist when I can, when he's available, and he's a, an amazing guitarist and producer and writer, very involved in... Wild Rose, all these things come round. He's uh, he wrote a lot of the songs on Wild Rose. He's an astonishing guitarist and plays for Tom Jones and various other people. He's a great guy. So he played a lot of the guitars on this, and a friend of mine called Johnny Bishop played a lot of the mandolins and things. And I played all the accordions really badly, um, and a bit of tuba <laughs> and some whistles. And the, the good thing, it's like you'll know about this as an as a uh, sound editor, you can make things sound. A lot better. A lot better. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I play anything these days. <laughs> and then any pianos, obviously I played. But generally it was, it was sort of strings and guitar driven and done in a way, and accordion driven, done in a way so that it can blend into the Fisherman songs, which yes. are also yeah. driven in a similar style. Yeah, when I saw the film, that's yeah. what really struck me. If you've got the, the singers, you've got this wonderful, you know, score running and underneath of it. And I thought... I'd really like to chat with you about that, and that's what brought us here today, yeah, yeah. sir. Well, I guess it's unusual in some some uh, extent. Usually, with well, with soundtracks and scores, they're usually completely disparate. The soundtrack is driven by they've sold the publishing, or they've sold the soundtrack, or the director's record collection dis- decides the soundtrack. And often we were, yeah, we're talking about that talking this about morning. That. And often that has no relation to the film. Yeah. But the director loves that piece of music, and you're like, wow. You know, I know you like it, but actually, that you know, that was used on a, an advert for Fish Fingers last week, and that's now what it represents, or, or you know, whatever it might be. The connotations of those songs are different for for everybody. And it's a dangerous thing. What you really want from your your music supervisor or your music editor is to pull in things that actually lock together as a soundtrack. But often that's not the case. Um, and then you've got the score, which is usually someone completely yeah. separate, and they're trying to get that to work as a, as an underscore. Really, the, the the function of the score is to control the pace of picture, to control all the tone and a dialogue that isn't spoken. If you see what I mean, so. Or, what are they actually saying in this piece? You know, I love you. Do they? Mm. <laughs> or are they just about to shoot them? Or is it, you know, or is this is this the end or the beginning or the, you know, all those things are pervaded by the music because often they can't be. It's just picture becomes two D. It's like what is the emotion behind this? What's the actual meaning of it? All of that has to be controlled by the score. Mm. And then you've got these directors. You've got these fantastic relations with composers. I mean, Spielberg, John Williams is the obvious one, but also, I mean, filming near us at the moment is 1917, Sam Mendes' new oh, film. Yeah. Thomas Newman's already locked into that, as he is for all of his films. And then Chris Nolan's about to make a new film. Guarantee you Hans Zimmer will be attached to that. Yes. Where the relationship develops with the composer and the director, actually, that's the best possible solution. It usually means that the composer has a little bit more free reign and there's less of a committee. There are always exceptions to the rule, but the composer, that's what, that's what their lifeblood is, and they'll see the picture and they'll go, I know how to do this, yeah. and they'll do it. And it'll be the first thing that they do, not the second thing they do, because that wasn't the yeah. thing that was obvious. It was like, I know exactly how this should be, I'm going to do it like this. And where that becomes edited, 
by the committee or the director doesn't trust the composer or, you know, there's, they're, they're not quite locked together. It's rare that the score gets better. Yeah. It might get better as far as the director's concerned, but as an overall view, is it better? Well, probably not because it wasn't, you know, you, the composer's now trying to shoehorn something that he's not feeling into what the director wants. But that is the nature of any committee-based um, decision. You know, this happened with Brexit. Mm-hmm. No one's going to get what they want. No. We're going to end up with a complete cluster, and that is yeah. that is film. Yeah. yeah. Film is a cluster. All the great films were made in isolation. Someone made it. No, there was no, you know, they were like, this is a bodge. It's never going to work. Here's the money. Go and make it. Yeah. Bring it to us when you've done it. And then it turns out to be an absolute winner because there were only two people involved yeah. and their vision was yeah. untainted. Yeah. Where it becomes a big, we've got to make this work. Mm. Everyone's got their piece in there. Committees can only, you could only end up with the lowest common denominator cannot be anything more yeah. and that's the trick so where you've got a composer and a director that work together and the director's like John I don't know what you're doing but I trust you go and do it we, we were on BBC um, Gloucestershire weren't we yeah. talking about Jaws and uh, the story on that is uh, sort of Steven Spiels having all this trouble with the film he said that John Williams got from write the score comes in this and he starts right play the score and he starts playing the two notes said Right, John, you've had your laugh. Now, really, play me the theme. And <laughs> it's only when you put it all together. I mean, that music saved that film yeah, because yeah, they had so much trouble. Well, I mean, John Williams is the master of making very bad sets and, and material suddenly seem expensive yeah. because his writing is so expensive yeah. and so high class that you, you know, Darth Vader's got a bucket on his head. Yeah. I mean, if you watch it with no music, it's like you've got to be having a laugh. <laughs> you know, kids look at images of Darth Vader now yeah. and they're like, you're joking. Yeah. You've got to be joking. That's, yeah. that's like Bucket Man in the two-year-old's cartoon. Yeah. You know, it's the scariest figure of yeah. most of our lives. Yeah. But, but, but it's all about the score. Because the score makes you go, that's not a bucket. That is a, yeah. that's yeah. protecting yeah. his burnt face. Yeah. And that, all of that's in the music, because yeah. it's never said. And hence, you know, the shark in Jaws. Jaws I mean, yeah. what a terrible piece of... <laughs> the, the thing didn't work, yeah, yeah, it just, yeah. You know, the score makes you believe that shark is lethal. Scares the life yeah, out yeah, exactly. every time you Brilliant. hear those notes. Yeah. yeah, just very, very clever writer. One of my favourite scores, which was done in 10 days, was... Roman Polanski had thrown out the original score for Chinatown. They brought in Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, yeah. My, my yeah. best score of all time. One of the best films Absolutely. of all time. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, I mean, you, Jack yeah. Nicholson's favourite film of his own. Yeah. Definitely Jerry Goldsmith's best score. Yeah. Definitely the best Polanski film. I mean, just like yeah. the three the yeah. triumphant of films. Only ten days he wrote that in. You know, you've got this most romantic of themes in the in the front. You've got a lot of atonal music that harks back to his score for Planet of the Apes and it's genius oh, it's Absolutely just genius. yeah it's the best score it's yeah. my favourite film type. yeah wonderful stuff and a theme that you can remember yes I mean arguably because we've got so picture and computing has allowed such dramatic uh, advances in in effects and visuals you don't have to imagine things quite as much you can get away with a lot of holes in other parts of the film. So the scripts can be slightly holier, the acting can be slightly ropier, and the score can be completely atonal and doing nothing because yeah. the picture now allows it yeah. to be. So there are some unusual scores that come through that arguably they work, 
because now you've got all this visual feast going on in front of you that you don't want another you know audio feast as well it's just too much but it does mean that there's a real lack of scores with themes and obvious yeah. you know stuff that yeah. exists away from the film you go oh that's actually really nice it's not just one note for five minutes yeah and we, I know I digress, and we'll come back in a minute, but I'm just fascinated to go down this road. I mean, we talk about the superhero thing, the Avengers. Now, Alan Silvestri has written a really good theme. Yeah. But it's hardly ever heard. I mean, he's a great theme writer, but yeah. there's just no time to use it because it's just explosions and yeah. Yeah. the way that films move now is just, it's like quickly grab your attention, grab your attention. Nothing's cut slowly and it makes it very, um, there's no room, you can't write a theme. <laughs> Don't get it in. That's that's a really good point because you look at Ridley Scott's film Alien, the way that's paced and the way Goldsmith's score just builds and builds as it goes through and it's just low-key under it. But when it needs to, it crescendos. I mean, there's only about three locations in that film. It's a script. It's a, it's a, it's a theatre script. Investors get scared. Everything's money-driven. And it get you, the investors who want to put money into things go, well, hold on, what's working? Yeah. It happens in music. What's working? Right, this beat, this style of song, this kind of singer. Let's do... Uh, only invest in that. So now, because we know that that works. Yeah. And then eventually something will pop out of the woodwork that's different. Yeah. And then everyone will do that. Because, oh, yeah, that's working. Quick, everyone to go and do that. So it's... Um, and that's what's happening in film. It's, there's so much investment and films cost such a, a huge amount of money that people... It's hard to get people to go, here's... Here's five million quid. Go and make whatever you think, whatever you like. <laughs> it's not going to happen. No. No. And, and you get a score as good as Justin Horowitz's score for First Man with the use of theremin and everything like that. And it's not even in the Oscars. It's not even nominated in the Oscars. I know. It's just bizarre. Jeff's still hurting from I am, really. <laughs> I'm particularly hurt in that, and no disrespect to Mr. Goranson, great guy, great composer, but for Black Panther... Over first man for score? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, that score thing is, you know, score awards are linked to sales, aren't they? Yeah. As opposed to the score. That's the problem with all awards, is the writers, the composers, the the actors, you're creating art, but it's not judged on art, it's judged on sales. And on that basis, McDonald's is the best restaurant in the world. <laughs> and uh, the problem is it, it's across all art, but not within the world itself, so... I mean, every now and again, there's a you know, there's someone in there like a Max Martin who's like, "This is the form. I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I'm going to prove that this form can have class and greatness." And then you go, "Yeah," and you have. You've done it yeah. twenty times, twenty global number ones. Yeah. No, who else has done that? Again, you know, in obviously when you're the Beatles, it's slightly easier yeah. because you become a phenomenon. When you're Coldplay, you become a phenomenon and you can keep doing it. But as the bloke in the background, who's like, I can make anyone a number one. I don't care who it is. I can create and write them a number one. That's a skill within the art form. And there are, and there are obviously examples of that in the modern film and art and music. It does exist. But also there's a lot of McDonald's. So Fisherman's Friend's not the first film that you were involved with. You worked with Michael Kamen on a number of films. What are your memories of Mr. Kamen, sadly no longer with us? For, I did a, um, a degree at the Royal Academy under two very prolific writers and arrangers, um, Rick Wentworth, who wrote the score to With Nell and I, yeah. amongst other things, um, but a great writer. And uh, an arranger called Nick Ingman, who wrote a lot of 
TV advertising stuff and was a big arranger, particularly for pop records, did and still does all the big records. And he's an amazing arranger. And it was a great course to be on. There were only a couple of us a year. And part of our route out of it was people got placed with Michael. He had MS quite badly when I worked with him. Uh, but he was still very prolific and he was an amazing character. Could charm directors yeah. and make them feel at ease and give them the feet, you know, without... I mean, we were already well into the realm of play me the whole score exactly as it's going to be on synths, which is the current state of affairs. So when you demo... What used to happen with scores is the composer would just play the piano along. Oh, yeah, we're going to do this. This will be on brass. This will be on uh, oboes. You know, whatever it might be. Now, what's the score going to be like? You've got to basically record the whole score. It's got to be exactly like it's going to be. So that takes a long time. And programming it is slower than recording it with the orchestra. So <laughs> we're in a terrible state where you've made the score and it's taking you ten times as long as actually recording the score is going to be. Technology doesn't always work in your favour. Michael was still in the zone of, I'm not going to play you anything on the synths. I'm going to sit down at the piano and tell, explain to you how this score is going to work. And one of the few guys who could do that... And, Wow. Directors would be like, yeah, great, I believe it. He had that skill. He had probably the most crucial skill as a film composer, which is never to get flustered or panic in any way. He, completely unaware of time, completely unfazed. Michael, we're, we're, the orchestra's going to be on the stand, in, an, in, in, in you're up on the, the conductor stand in an hour, and you've written no cues. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Expand that. <laughs> what? You know, that's Michael all over. So we'd often turn up at Abbey Road, the orchestra would be there, he hadn't written anything. <laughs> the whole team would all be in the back. <laughs> How about this? You know, whistling something or playing something on the piano. Uh, I reckon this might work. <laughs> yeah, go and sort that out. <laughs> and we're not talking of small films, we're talking of things like Event Horizon and X-Men here and there. Standard Michael lack of panic. But the thing is, you, you there's a certain... <laughs> I've got a man who does panic. Yeah. I mean, some of the team never panicked either. They'd just be like, you know, unbothered by it all. It's definitely a crucial quality to have because there's the two approaches. One is the I'm right, I'm the composer, I know what I'm talking about. But you can't have that battle every time. And there is a committee of people and they've all got valid points and most of them are paying your wage. So you, they often pull rank. So there's a point where you have to be... You can't be too attached. You have to go in with a completely... I'm prepared to chop this up into small pieces and glue it back together in a different order. And that often makes you a more desirable composer because you're malleable and you're prepared to go through all the, the loops of it. doesn't necessarily give you the best score, but it makes you easier to work with. And that's half the gig. One thing that Michael did have, as well as his... Unflappability and his ability to be sort of removed to some extent was that he he was an amazing melody writer. So he wrote themes, and that was his big thing. He wrote proper songs. So all of his themes have a real connection, and they're melodic. You know, as as shown by the fact that he wrote everything I do for Brian yeah, Adams. Yeah, I mean, as a film, not many film composers write songs that are outsell all songs. Yeah. But, but it's also, a real skill. Yeah, but but also the theme from that film, taking away that song, is still brilliant. I would put that up against Cornwall's Adventures of Robin Hood and say they're equally good. 
Oh yeah, Michael was a monster at those sort of things. He was brilliant. He had, his, he had a a brilliant pace concept, which was always triplets. It was always that sort of thing, uh, and he used that in Robin Hood. And he was just, um, so you can always spot that in his films. And he can, and he also had a yeah, just as I say, a brilliant touch for melody. Gave films humanity yeah. that possibly wouldn't have it otherwise. Can I, can I ask about a film that you were involved with with Michael, which is one of my favourites, Open Range? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's a great film. We, we went out to Prague to record the score, and it was, a, it was a really great trip, actually. We had one of our orchestrators, we had a copyist, and then there were two of us who were doing some legwork, um, myself and a guy called Elan Eshkeri, who's a, quite a, a, a solid composer these days, uh, in his own right. He stayed in a, I'm sure it was a lovely hotel. I, I can't remember it because I was just up in in the middle of the night in bedrooms trying to sort out Michael's score. <laughs> um, but Kevin came out, Kevin Costner came out for that. Yeah. He directed and he came with three mates and it, no no bouncers or security, Just he, he just, and he was a brilliant guy. He was really good. He was very involved with the score and he really enjoyed it. And Michael wrote an amazing theme for that. Oh, incredible. It's just an incredible film. It's a brilliant film. Yeah. Great actors involved. I wasn't involved in the shoot, but I can see that the actors are, are allowed to bloom, which is surely what happens when uh, actors direct. Yeah. Because they seem to be a little bit more open to the actors getting... Because uh, the other film, the other Costner film of that similar nature, Perfect World. Yeah. And that's directed by old... Um, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. And it was his first directorship, I think. And it's a brilliant... That's, I think that's a great film. And the actors seem to have... It seems to flow better. Yeah. So I was reading the Violet Design website, which said you were the orchestrator and ghostwriter for the score Mamma Mia! the movie. I didn't understand. I understand the term ghostwriter in terms of writing. I don't understand what it means in terms of music. On that score, all the music came from the songs, really. But often it was left, so they'll be like... It was so, again... Very tight timescale. The first film, there wasn't a lot of... Budget grew as as people started to realise it was going to be a massive success. But initially, it wasn't a big budget. And most of the music budget was spent on recording the songs. So Benny was out in Stockholm with the original band, re-recording all the ABBA stuff, and then working quite hard to get the actors on top of that. And, and Benny's... I mean, he was an astonishing writer... And it was interesting to watch him work. He works on a Synclavier, which is an old machine. I mean, it's like, I mean, when were Synclaviers made? 80s, I should think, late 80s. So for, like, it's like flying a Concorde. Yeah. But not well-equipped for riding to picture that it moves and has a linear timescales. So he found it reasonably hard to get his head round things that had shape and could move and flux with the picture, especially as they were cutting the picture quite hard at the time as we're writing. So I got to, you know, flesh out a lot of music prior to songs in incidental sections, and that's all it really meant. Ah, right. So usually you'd pick a theme from one of the songs and develop that and drive it throughout. Um, but ghostwriting within films is quite standard. Most composers will have a, a team of three or four, and some will have a team of 20 of guys, and they'll say, this is the theme for the battle sequences, right, you write that one, you write that one, take the theme and expand it. I mean, the argument is where expansion becomes writing. If you've written the theme, then you own the copyright. That's the 
Because if you go through the credits of the film, as it gets down towards the end, where the music always are, and that after really, dog after dog handling, yeah, that yeah. really hacks me off as well. And uh, you've got orchestrations, additional music by, and it tends to go in that order. Yes. So it depends. I mean, assistants on films often do more. I mean, there may be stuff that says in the in the label copy of the. So if you really punted it down, you might find that there's composing credits or there's publishing credits going to various people. You know, who filled in the colours on the, the uh, on, on some of those great masters' paintings? It wasn't always the master. No. Exactly. And, yeah, I mean, it happens a lot. Anything that has a quick turnover that, should, you know, paradox of film music is that often the score is tempt, tempt with, and that's usually... Um, so you'll have a temporary score that they edit the picture to that gives the everyone the flavour whilst they're cutting the picture and looking at it and getting it to work. And sometimes that comes from other films. Sometimes that comes from classical pieces. But obviously something like 2001. Famous one, yeah. A big temp score that... I mean, nothing worse than getting a temp score of the greatest pieces of music of all time. Yeah. Go, How long have I got? You've got yeah. three weeks. Oh, great. <laughs> well, most of these pieces took five years to write and you've got 40 of them. Yeah. You know, it's like it's just not feasible. So there's always you've always got a team, and again, that's the, the, the thing about being a great composer on bigger pictures is about is being a team leader, possibly more than a composer. It's like you're producing this this team of writers. You're coming up with the the bones. Here it is. This is what we, this is the piece of clay we're going to use. Here's a piece for you. You know, handing it out and getting that all to work and overseeing that is half the gig. And there are people that are better than that, than arguably composing. And there are equally small composers that just could never do that. Or composers that have to have their hands on the whole machine. They can't, they just can't, it can't be broken down into jobs that are sent out to other people. Just can't be done. Yeah, it's an interesting game and everyone has their, their skills and things that they do best. So let's come right up to date. And we mentioned earlier on, we spoke about Wild Rose, where you were the uh, score mixer on. I mean, again, that sounds like an incredible experience and it's been great at the box office. Reviews have been tremendous. It was brilliant to be involved in. I mixed the 5-1 score for Jack Arnold, who was the composer. And there's a, a small amount of incidental music within that film and all very delicately done. He's quite an experienced composer. He kept his score very much in the flavour of the, of the theme. So very country, lots of slide guitars... It's all quite delicate stuff. It's lovely. It wasn't a complex mix as such, but every cue was treated in its own... Because it's all electric or small amounts of instruments, every cue is treated as an individual mix. Whereas if you're doing an orchestral score, it's template mixing. So you bring up your orchestra and this is how your orchestra sounds in the cinema. The rooms are out here, so you've got a sense of scale and the centre mic on the orchestra's here and it's about getting the orchestra to sound like an orchestra but in the 5-1 surround sound whereas this score was about every cue had its own place and the effects and so in that respect it was quite quite nice to do and then I recorded and produced and mixed all the band stuff so anything where there was singers Um, I think there was some stuff recorded up in Scotland but we did a lot in Livingston Studios in Wood Green with the band Often, most of the band you see on screen, they're the same band. And they're actually killing players and great, great guys in that. And then I mix that, both for the film and the soundtrack album, two different mixes. So there's a 5-1 location mix, which makes is meant to sound like the band's on stage. Mm-hmm. So it's often a quite gritty 
and and roomy and a bit weird sounding. And then there's a CD mix, which is a complete re, re, remix, often with the same the same source sounds, but sometimes things are replaced. So I might replace the snare or mm-hmm. just to get it to sound a bit beefier and more like a record. And then we did radio mixes, which were remixed again, so that they're really poppy and punchy and clean. So yeah, a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> going round and round the same thing. Uh, uh, but another success. Oh, so, well, I mean, that is... Tom did such a great job on the direction. I mean, he is uh, he's going to be the next big director. He is phenomenal. Brilliant writing. Music's awesome. The guys involved in the team writing those songs. Ian Brown, um, Simon Johnson. I think the script writers and Jesse were all involved. So it was a real... Oh, and she's just ridiculous she's amazing so when you've got an actor like an actress like that it's you can't you know it's very hard to push her in the wrong direction she's got a real feel for it her voice is ridiculous yeah and it's and above all it's a beautiful story it really gives you as a musician watching that it feels like my life because it's always that it's that balance between something you love trying to balance that against your life and your family and all the rest of it for me uh, in some ways it's worse because it's if I was in a cave in the Himalayas. I'd be making some music, um, but it's also my job. So there's a real element of I'm digging a hole as well, musical hole the whole time. So it's a real balancing act, and that film captures that. All right, that's top of my list to watch now. Now, film music is just one small piece of the incredible work you do, and you've worked with some of the greatest musicians out there. Do you ever get any time off? No. Okay, <laughs> that's <laughs> what my, my, my missus is very angry about it, to be fair. She doesn't quite understand. But it's this thing of um, self-employed. You, you, can't, you can't ever say no yeah. to anything. Partly because if you say no to anything, you're, it's not the gig that you turned away. It's the 10 gigs that that's you don't cool. get off the back of it. Yeah. Uh, and the guy that picked up that gig gets. So you're always saying yes, that's one thing. Also, I'm, I'm very much a jack of no trades. I, I turn my hand to a lot of different things. Back in the 70s, I'd be an old-school record producer. So the guys like um, George Martin or Bob Ezrin or those guys that can play everything, they can write string arrangements, they can sing BVs on the project. Ethan Johns is another guy, a modern version of that, where they'd come in, they'd strip the band back, they'd rebuild it, they'd do all the arranging, they'd engineer it, they'd put the mics up, they'd mix it, they'd write the string arrangements, they'd play drums. There's not many around. My instrumental skills are definitely not my not top of the list of things, but I have played keys for Lou Reed and various other people. Um, <laughs> Just throw and, that in there. Um, well done. And I, in, in, the, in the safe harbour of the... The studio, you can do anything. Yeah, yeah. Because you can yeah. get it to work. So I, I regularly play keys on records or a bit of bass, or, and I sing a lot of backing vocals for people. Yeah. Um, used to do a lot of BBs for Gilbert O'Sullivan, sang BBs on the Cliff record that I just produced for Christmas, which, was, which did really well. It's, it's nice to be busy, and it's nice to do different things. I think if you get stuck in a rut in the music industry, you can be pigeonholed very quickly and then you only do that one thing styles and forms change very quickly and it's nice to be outside of that in a, in a negative way no one it's rare for people to come to me and say you're the guy who does hip-hop drums but i might get a hip-hop record that had strings and had a lot of elements involved and they're like who can deal with this you know it's got so many different angles we need a we need someone who's can 
touch upon all this stuff, then that's my that's where I often come in. And film score's a good example of that. Unless you're doing a John Williams score on every film, irrespective of genre, you need to manipulate the score to suit what's going on. And that's so that makes sense to me. And as a producer, I produce a lot of different artists, so so I'm just in the middle of a record with George Fenton, which is who obviously did the Blue Planet and all the the um, and and Gandhi and Cry Freedom and all, and that, all yeah. those beautiful scores, and that's going to be a very interesting project. So you know, you can turn my hand to that, or or a Bellahead record, or you know, whatever the whatever is called up, and it's quite nice to be able to do those things. Any other future film work, uh, film projects on the go, or can you talk about them? I have, well, not at this point. I've got a potential TV series. There's some other some other pictures coming in, but until you're on those, it's hard yeah, to say. It's to say yeah. there, there's an ejector seat button at any point in the process. No, no, fair comment. But yeah, it's good. There's um, what else is going on? I'm doing some dance stuff at the moment with a guy called Jack Wilby, who's it's very it's sort of a, a Calvin Harris style house stuff so get to do a bit of everything incredible well mm. thank you very much for your time and I'd say fantastic music for Fisherman Friends and Wild Roses out there now top of our list to watch and certainly pay very close attention to that music it's well worth it Ruben thank you very much for your time thank pleasure you. thank you thank you He was a delight to talk to, and as an added bonus, he introduced us to a fantastic sandwich bar in Epsom as well. Thanks, Rupert. OK, let's find out what else is happening in the world of movies as we change into our news casting suits for the movie news. OK, all suited up. Graham, I will hand over to you to start, as I know how much you like this section of the show. Like isn't the word I'd use. No wonder our listeners pass comment on our anger. OK, let's have a look and see what you've got for me this month. More Gibson, Butler and Willis, perhaps? Or are we really going to go for it? And are you going to get me to talk about Steven Seagal? <laughs> what I... Would I do that to you? Yes. 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 Not at all. Today is not about actors. It's about genres. Graham, you're about to go highbrow. <laughs> Gibson off. I know it is going to be something I don't like. Right. I bloody knew it. Upcoming horror films. <laughs> An important trend in today's movie business, and you're about to talk about some of the biggest ones coming. By the end of this, I'm sure you'll want to see them all as well. Bet I don't. Not unless you're paying my dry cleaning bills, Jeff. OK, let's do this. Deep breaths. <sighs> Horror films continue to be the most successful films being made at the moment, unless, Jeff, you count that these fantastic superhero movies. Horror movies are usually low budget and can give very good returns for their investment. In recent years, a growing number are also hits with the critics. It, Chapter 1, Hereditary. Yeah, I remember how much you didn't love that one, Jeff. And Get Out all fall into that category. So... At the flicks, I mean Jeff, are going to pick four upcoming horror films we think are going to be big hits. Indeed, looking down the list, I might actually watch one of these. Not sure I will. <laughs> actually, Neil, I think you might in this instance. More to come on that. 
But let's start with something neither of us will watch. It Chapter 2. I saw the trailer for It Chapter 1 and I thought, no way. The same for this second and final part. It Chapter 2 is set 27 years after the first film as the grown-up Losers Club returned to Derry for the final confrontation with Pennywise. In the book, the story of the children was intertwined with that of the adults. In effect, the two stories became one. Given the horrors that befell the children were the basis of the first film, it will be interesting to see how they will have to change the narrative structure for part two. Maybe for you, Jeff, not for me. Filming with the adult cast, which includes Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy and Bill Hader, took place last year in Canada. The movie opens on September the 6th and begins a large number of horror films released between then and Halloween. As the first film is now the highest grossing horror movie of all time, expectations are very high for the return of Pennywise. If it is that successful, maybe we should see it, Neil. No, no, you lost me at the word grossing. (laughs) Not a chance. Me neither, I was only teasing. (laughs) Let's go to the second horror film on Jeff's list. Sorry, I mean movie news. It is also another Stephen King story, Doctor Sleep, the sequel to The Shining. How appropriate. Dr. Sleep is opening on Halloween in the UK. Fantastic. I'll book our seats now. (laughs) You do that, Jeff. You stretch out across all three. (laughs) Like It Chapter 2, this has another Scottish actor in the leading role. This time it's Ewan McGregor. Also in the film is Rebecca Ferguson. At least all her work in the Mission Impossible films will have trained her to be able to run very fast from the horrors on show here. Dr. Sleep also filmed last year, this time in Atlanta, Georgia. And for the shining obsessives out there, this is a sequel to the book, not the Stanley Kubrick film. This means Dick Halloran, the cook who tried to save Danny, very much alive as he didn't die in the book. Carl Lubley is playing him in this movie as the original Halloran. Scatman Crothers died many years ago. As for the plot, Danny has grown up to be Ewan McGregor. He still has The Shining, but is also an alcoholic just like his father. Where he can, he uses his powers to help people. Events take a darker turn for him when he comes across an organisation called The True Knot, who feed off children who have the gift of The Shining. In a recent CinemaCon presentation, Warner Brothers showed off some of the Doctor Sleep footage and how it called back to the original Shining. Word is, it's very scary and certainly not something I'll be watching. Let's move on to a sequel I will watch, Zombieland 2, or as it is called, Zombieland Double Tap. Hmm. (laughs) Filming recently finished in Atlanta. By the way, what is it about Georgia that all the zombie movies and TV shows are filmed there? (laughs) Is it something to do about their population of the state that we should know about? Anyway, not much is known about the plot. What we do know is all the original cast are back, and that includes Bill Murray. Also joining the cast this time is Dan Aykroyd. Maybe we are getting the undead Ghostbusters. Definitely something I would watch. Full credit to director Ruben Fleischer for getting his original cast back. And that includes Jesse Eisenberg, Emma Stone and Woody Harlson. Despite all their awards, it is good to see that they can still have fun. The current plan is to get the movie into cinemas this side of Halloween. That's a lot of post-production work and promotion to do over the next six months. You were right, Graham. I will watch that one. 
What my horror film of the year? <laughs> you and I certainly won't be watching the last one. A remake of a film that was previously a remake of a film that was previously a remake of a Japanese film, The Grudge, about a house with a vengeful ghost, was made back in 2004 with Sarah Michelle Gellar and set in Japan. The new version will be set in America and stars Andrea Riseborough as a detective who starts to suspect supernatural overtones at a murder scene. It was filmed last year and the release, which was due to have been this summer, has been put back to January 2020. Horror is over. Thanks, Jeff, for the sleepless nights I will now get. Cheers, Graham. There'll be more traditional horrors for you next month <laughs> as we have big news on one of your favourites. And thanks to all our listeners who keep sending me stories about Graham's favourite actors. <laughs> Rest assured, whatever you send me, he will be reading out. Also, Neil, keeping with the theme, I believe you have some horror news for us this month. I do, and like Graham said earlier, I'll not be watching it. Filmed in Gloucestershire throughout May is a low-budget horror movie called Sacrilege. Newly formed production company Bad Blood, sewn by Taylor Swift. No, never mind. You wouldn't know the reference anyway. I don't, actually. It went right over my head. Planning to make a number of horror movies in Britain. I really should point out that I'm not a Taylor Swift fan. I just happen to know that one, all right? Anyway, little is known about the plot, except that it has elements of Cabin in the Woods and The Wicker Man. An interesting combination. I was a bit worried then, Neil, when you said that about Taylor Swift. Yeah, I thought, I'm getting concerned. I, I thought you were going to give up on your um, Barry Manilow collection. I'm pleased to see not. <laughs> and, and also, I see you as an extra in The Wicker Man, Neil. Maybe sitting up in The Wicker Man itself. Funny you should say that, as there was a call-out for extras for a night shoot in a sequence shot near Wooden Under Edge a few weeks ago. They wanted torch-carrying villagers, as if they would trust you with fire, Jeff. I'd have put your name forward. That said, as the villagers had to terrorise the heroes of the film, I think you would have been perfect. As I said, Bad Blood is a new production company formed by Mark Kenner and David Creed, so not Taylor Swift, who I know nothing about, both of whom have had years of experience of working on major films. This, I think, will be a company now to watch as it develops in the Southwest, although I won't be watching the horror movies. Jeff, over to you. Thanks, Neil. Continuing the local theme, Stroud resident Richard E. Grant has had a great year. A key role in the new Star Wars film, Rise of the Budget... Oh, sorry, Rise of a Skywalker. That's actually very Jeez, funny. That's quite funny for you. <laughs> yeah. Did you get that from someone else? No, 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 no. It's my damned with faint praise by these two. Fantastic. He also got an Oscar nomination for his excellent work in Can You Ever Forgive Me? and a co-starring role in the sequel, The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. That's a bit of a mouthful. It's a sequel to Surprise Hit, The Hitman's Bodyguard a few years ago, where professional minder Ryan Reynolds had to keep assassin Samuel L. Jackson alive and deliver him to The Hague. Now in the sequel, currently filming in Italy, Croatia, Slovenia, Bulgaria and the UK, the plot twist is Reynolds has to keep Jackson's wife, played brilliantly in the first film by Salma Hayek, Alive. She's fantastic in that film, isn't she? She is. She's really good. Foul mouth and aggressive reminds me of my wife. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I might actually leave that in. See how that goes that down. <laughs> See how far it gets. Additions to the cast this time around include Morgan Freeman, Tom Hopper and Antonio Banderas. While Richard E. Grant was in the original, it's expected that his part will be much bigger this time around. That's what an Oscar does for you. <laughs> Judge for yourself when this big-budget action comedy opens in the summer of 2020. OK, let's find out what we're talking with Elijah about this month. <laughs> 
staying with the horror theme introduced in our movie news, this month we are going to be talking Alfred Hitchcock's classic Psycho with Elijah. Neil, have you noticed how much horror Jeff has sneaked into this podcast? It's unbelievable. Perhaps, Jeff, it is about time for you to create another of your horror pod shorts, your safe space, if you like. No, that is... And I'm shocked that I'm saying this. Good thinking from the pair of you. I have an... (laughs) I have an idea in mind, and I'll work on it later. I need a volunteer to see if the blood splatters in real life as it does in the movies. Neil, are you busy, Leia? Mm, sure, why? I wasn't listening. Enough. Over to Elijah for some common sense. Hi, welcome to your At The Flicks team. We are here talking with Elijah about one of the all-time horror classics, Psycho. Elijah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on again. What are your thoughts on this Alfred Hitchcock classic? It's fantastic, I think, for the most part. I didn't really expect to like it, especially after I watched um, Vertigo, which is, by some people's opinion, the one of the greatest films of all time. I wasn't that impressed with it narratively. I thought artistically it was great. And so I was watching this, kind of expecting the same thing, and I was thoroughly engrossed. It is a clever story. I mean, it constantly takes you one way and then pulls you back another, twists and turns on you all over the place. It's no secret that Hitchcock bought up every copy of the book that he could just to get it out of circulation so nobody would be able to work out the twist when they watched it. Well, at least the author got some money out of that. He certainly (laughs) did. At one point, he was going to be the scriptwriter, but I don't think him and Hitchcock hit it off. Yeah, sounds like Hitchcock and most people. Yes, yeah, mainly as female actresses, but yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But Psycho is a classic. It's just a really cleverly constructed thriller. It just catches you by surprise uh, in, in that you follow this woman, Janet Lee, Marion Crane, who is a thief, but you sympathize with her. Then she's murdered. Then you sympathise with the Norman Bates character because you think he's... Covering up for his mother. Covering up for his mother. Yeah. And, you know, it's all this way. Hitchcock is constantly wrong footing you. I think it's brilliant. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I hadn't seen it in years and watched it again. I thought, this hasn't aged a bit. Well, apart from the last five minutes, which is a bit silly... But right up until the big reveal, I thought this plays fabulous. I loved the fact that it was in black and white as well. Yeah. Um, it's paced really well. It oh, the pacing is excellent. Just, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't pause. It's so, so different from what I remember of other films in that period. It just, the music drives it. It just keeps going. It chugs along really well. I mean, Herman's music is just incredible. I mean, there's, there's no wind instrument. It's all string. It's a crafted movie, I feel. It's, you know, it's designed, it's put together with thought. Every piece of dialogue is in the right place and all mm-hmm. the characters appear and move around at the right place and they, they follow logical motivations. So you think, oh, right, here they introduce Norman Bates and you think, oh, right, so there's something going on here and he has these little spy holes. So you go, oh, hang on a minute, there's something <laughs> on. And then you you think, oh, the mother, and then that gets explained. You think, oh, he's covering up for his mother. Oh, that's terrible, that poor boy. And then you're wrong-footed again. So it, it's, it's put together like a very finely quilted tapestry. It's very well done. Yeah, absolutely. So the only 
clean character, if you like, is Marion Crane's sister, yes. played by Vera Miles, yeah. who's the most corrupted character in Psycho 2. Yes, let's pass over Psycho well, 2. Psycho we? 2 is not that bad. Richard Franklin directs it. I thought it was quite good. There's no such thing as a film after Psycho. No. Yeah, it's all in your imagination. Great. <laughs> yep. It's all it's all um, Norman Bates' dreams while he's in the psych ward under drugs. Lots and lots of drugs. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> the thing with Psycho 2, and I don't want to dwell on this, I want to go back to the first one, is that it's set 25 years after the events of the first oh, one. Oh, wow, okay. So, you know, he's gone through the mental institution and he's he believes he's been cured and he's released and then it starts again. And how does it start? Who's starting it? Why are they starting it? So does he go back to the original motel? Yes. Oh, good grief. Okay. Yes. Why would you do that? Because he owns it. it. It's been closed up, you know, until till he could come out. So and then he, he gets it back and there's all sort of twist to it. But what I would say of Psycho 2, Jerry Goldsmith's music. Fantastic. That's nothing compared to what Bernard Herrmann did in the original. Let's focus in on the key part of Psycho, that shower sequence. Hitchcock. (laughs) (laughs) Adolf Hitchcock. Adolf Hitchcock. (laughs) Hitchcock wanted to do that. It's been a long day, Elijah. Um, (laughs) Not as long as yours, but, you know. So Mussolini's in the shower. (laughs) (laughs) But he wanted to do it. Hitchcock wanted to do this thing without any music whatsoever. Really? Yeah. He didn't want any music. His wife and Bernard Herrmann persuaded him to try it with music and see what it, see what it looked like, and it's just amazing. There is that famous story that Hitchcock didn't direct the shower scene, that it was Saul Bass. All Ooh. right, all right. Oh, very controversial, and I'd read that before Hitchcock died. So all these people that said the story's only come out since he died, I read that first in 77, 78. All right, okay. Well, and- maybe his wife kept him from directing it. Possibly. You know what he was like with women? Yep. (laughs) I mean, Psycho is a film that changed the way we watch films. In America, prior to Psycho, you could go in to any cinema at any time during the film. And you would sit there, you'd watch it through, and you'd watch it again. UK was pretty similar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it was Psycho. Why would anyone do that? Exactly. (laughs) But with Psycho, you were stopped. If you didn't make the opening of the film, you were not allowed in until the next showing. And it built this mystique. It's such brilliant marketing. Oh, yeah. He was a master of all of that, though. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And his trailers for his films were, you know, were excellent as well. The Psycho trailer is a class act in how to do a trailer for a film. The trailer for Psycho is Hitchcock walking around the set. He goes into room number one where Marion Crane is murdered and he says, something bad happens in here. <laughs> and and then walks out, and you think that's just fantastic. He's just piqued your interest, hasn't he? What, yeah. What right. have, you mean he have... doesn't show the entire conclusion? No, no, nothing. <laughs> yeah. He does. Only... What kind of trailer is this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The the only <laughs> bit of the film you see in that trailer is a close up on Janet Lee's mouth as she screams. Yeah. That's it. Everything else is Hitchcock walking around the set saying something bad happens here. <laughs> well, this. This could be the murder weapon. And it's just brilliant. <laughs> that is clever, yeah. And it's a trailer that lasts for about eight minutes. What? Yeah, it, it lasts what? a long time. And that's a short, isn't it? It's like oh, a yeah. Pixar short. I mean, this is where Psycho really succeeds, you know. I mean, 
Nobody wanted to make it. The censors wanted to ban it before it was even made. He couldn't get the money, so he put up his own money and brought in his TV production crew. He had to film it in black and white because there's no way the sequences of blood would have got away with it in colour. Although that said, you know, this is two years after Hammer's Dracula and Frank, Curse of Frankenstein, which were awash with blood, but yet he had to film it in black and white. We're five years away from the real events when Ed Gein went mental in Texas, you know, <laughs> which is where the inspiration for Robert Bloch's original novel. So you it seems got, like there's no end of, of psychotic serial killer inspiration from that guy. Oh, Ed Gein. Oh, yeah. yeah. Possibly the three greatest horror movies of the last 60 years, Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs, all inspired by one person. He, he was, Gein was committed and he died in a mental institution in the mid-70s. And somebody said, I remember a famous quote that somebody said about this. They said, um, yeah, yeah, I used to look after him. He's a lovely guy. Except when the moon was out. I stayed away from him then. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear, oh, dear. We spoke a lot about the film. Let's talk about the performances. I mean, what are your thoughts on Anthony Perkins? I think he was absolutely great. He really sold that kind of misguided, weird, almost childlike adult. And I was thinking when I watched the film, I was was kind of live-tweeting it, or at least I live-tweeted 20 minutes of it. And uh, I was like, oh, he's such a sweet, innocent kid. And then he looks in the peephole. I'm like, oh, scratch that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he was, you can tell that there's something off, but he does, he plays it perfectly. So you know he's off, but he also appears sympathetic. Like he's a very sympathetic character throughout. And then at the very end of the movie, when you've got the mother talking and it's a slow zoom on him, that was just brilliant. Yeah, I find that one of the most un comfortable things to watch in cinema (laughs) to this day. It killed his career because, you know, he was typecast forevermore after that. Yeah, wasn't he like a really big star by then? Yeah, he was. He was a very much a, I mean, he's a young star and he was sort of looked on as one of the, you know, in the the James Dean era. So he's he's coming out of that. He usually played the young son who wanted to, to get ahead. Mm-hmm. Although in this thing, he literally wanted to get ahead. Oh. <laughs> but, you know, after that, he was typecast as this neurotic character actor. Films like WUSA, Murder on the Orient Express, you know, things like that, where he played this character, which are all offshoots of Norman Bates, and really tragic because, of course, in real life, Perkins died, although he was married, he died of AIDS. Yeah. Yeah, do you know that? No. no. Oh, oh it's, it's, it, this is doubly tragic. All right. He died of AIDS. His a, wife, a lot of gay men were married by then, back yeah. then. Yeah. But his wife died in one of the planes on 9-11. Good oh, grief. Wow. Yeah. Holy yeah. cow, that sucks. Yeah, an incredibly tragic story. But Psycho did limit him in what he could do after that, just mm. because he was so good in this film. Just couldn't break out of it. So come 83 when they made Psycho 2. Then there was this whole Psycho 3, Psycho 4, and he was typecast in that role, and he was brought back to play Norman Bates all the time. But That sucks. Yeah. yeah. That's awful. Right. Okay, so Janet Lee. I thought she had a great performance in this. Yeah. I liked the build-up. I liked the way they started it. I mean, we did see her in her bra a lot. I suppose in the 1950s that was quite racy. Compared to today's standards, I mean, she might as well be, might as well be wearing a modest swimsuit. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, she was. I thought she was very good. I liked the way the tension built with the policeman and the way she was constantly looking over her shoulder until mm-hmm. sort of when she gets to the most terrifying part of her story or her journey, she gets to the Bates Motel. She almost relaxes, doesn't she? Oh, at mm-hmm. least, you know, and here's this nice weird chap talking to me and offering me sandwiches and milk and it's all very relaxed. And then, of course, it all goes south for her. You talk about her and her bra. I mean, you've seen that bra, that 1960s bra. She turned sharply. She could take your eye out. <laughs> Looks like Madonna. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oof. <laughs> yeah. But I do like that line of uh, Anthony Perkins when they're having the milk and sandwiches. Yeah. And they look around the room at all the animals that are on the wall. And he says to her, well, I like stuffing things. You know, <laughs> no. Right. Okay. If that's not a clue where this one is going, I don't know what is. Probably straight from Hitchcock. Yeah, Yeah. he was probably thinking it when he had it put in. Let's talk about the music. Bernard Herrmann's music score is just phenomenal. Just, I know we covered it loosely earlier on, but this use of just strings, no no wind instruments is just incredible. Yeah, and it's a proper score. You know, it, it it adds to the film. It's not, uh, I think you said last time we spoke to you, um, it's not like happy when it's happy or, you know, stabby when it's stabby and you know, mm-hmm. sad when it's sad. I mean, it is kind of stabby when it's stabby. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's very, very different type of stabby, you know. And um, I thought it worked really, really well. And they built up the tension and the suspense and the, ooh, what's going to happen it's really there? creepy, isn't it? Yeah. It keeps you in a state of unease the entire film, even when nothing uneasy is happening. Like when she's driving down the road. It's very uncomfortable. Yes, it is. It's yeah. uncomfortable musically. Yes. And so it sets you on edge. And as the film goes on, none of them, it doesn't get any lighter. It doesn't get any nicer. It just keeps ramping up that tension and twisting the, kind of turning the screw. Here's how good this is. This film is almost 60 years old. You play just a couple of beats from that shower scene with the strings, with the violins. And everybody would know what it means. Yep. Yes, exactly. That's so good. It, it is. is a cultural icon, isn't yeah. it? So I'm in a room, and with you, Elijah, I can't hear it, as in the room, virtually in the room, with a whole load of people that won't watch horror movies. Would this encourage you to watch any other horror movies? No. No. Uh, Modern horror films are rubbish. Maybe, you tell me. maybe some older ones. Maybe uh, it depends on how the horror, what the horror film's trying to tell. Like, I, I'm not interested in Pet Cemetery. No. I mean, it, Psycho's a really creepy thriller, isn't it? It's more than a, mm-hmm. more than a horror film. Yeah, it's a precursor to all the slasher films, and even like it creates so many tropes that are used everything. Yeah. In everything, so like the Janet Leigh's character is the the slut, and then her sister is the virgin. Yeah, and which gets twisted well, in nowadays. The guys always get killed, but you know, back then they didn't really castigate guys for being adulterers. Yeah, so he's is, pretty much left off the hook. That is a really, really good point, and I hadn't thought of that because if you go to something like Halloween, so you got Janet Lee's daughter Jamie Lee Curtis in that, who is the virgin. She's the only one that survived. All her friends, all their boyfriends, all get killed. That's that's a really, really good point. I mean, it, it could also just be cribbing from, you know, Dracula with that idea of the, the him kidnapping a, a virgin. Horror films are essentially, in, in my opinion, two things. It's either horror from within, so in other words, within your family, within your cycle, that something's wrong, or how, horror from without, you go somewhere where you shouldn't have gone to. 
and then you're you get caught into a cycle you can't get out of and that's how horror works and on one of those two and you're right this this horror from within is probably the most primal you think you've got your world order sorted and something's come in there and it's going to destroy it there's nothing more frightening than that and sometimes that fear is justified sometimes it's not no, no, that's, that's right. And it can be played on. And that's the other part of this as well, is that you can get, and I go back to the old Twilight Zone episode, The Monsters of Dew on Maple Street, which is all about aliens. They don't invade. They just put the yeah. fear out there that the, that the monsters are already there. So you're ripping each other And so they start, apart. like, getting, uh, they're at each other's throats the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And, and then, you know, when that settles down, then they move in. That I think is is a really fascinating thing, and, and particularly at the moment, whether you know whether you're over with yourself or whether in this country, it, it seems to be played on all the time, whether it's justified or not. Well, it gets clicks. Oh, it it certainly clicks. does get clicks. <laughs> it gets clicks. Does. It gets traction, and as long as it gets clicks and gets traction, it's going to keep getting hyped and hyped, and the media makes everything worse in every way. But do you think, and we've gone way off the point and this isn't going to make it <laughs> in the show, but the, the whole internet thing has actually, rather than expanded our world, has shrunk it. We're like medieval villages now. I mean, flat earthers. Bloody Netflix has put a thing out about flat earthers now. Yeah, they, uh, they stole my idea. Did they? Yeah, I, <laughs> I wanted to do a, um, a sort of reality TV show where we put a load of flat earthers in two big trucks and then they have to race to the edge of the earth and film over the edge. <laughs> and that was my that idea for it. For a, for a, okay, there you go. You've got trucks, you've got access to boats, you can travel anywhere on the planet. Just go for I the mean, edge. It used to be that if you're a crazy person, yeah. You had to find another crazy person physically or via the mail. And um, there now, it is. There if it you're is. a crazy person, you yeah. use Google and you find a million crazy people yes. that are yeah. just like you. Absolutely bizarre. I mean, yeah. It just... So, psycho. <laughs> Elijah, how would you wrap this up? Well, what would you say? Well, your final thoughts. I think as a whole, you know, Hitchcock created something that really sticks with you in a – it gets under your skin – with the score, with the visuals, the way he uses the black and white to uh, kind of focus everything and to create these shades of gray, obviously. But he created a story where everyone is intelligent. Nobody's an idiot. Everyone does smart things. They The cop knows that something's off. The car salesman knows things are off. And uh, you have relatable characters, characters that you can care for, except the guy. You don't care about the guy. And then you know, really... Like you were saying, Graham, just really subverts all your expectations. Every time you think you know what's going on, you have no clue. No. And then he creates something brilliant at the end, except for, you know, that weird little five-minute exposition scene that... Yeah, it's definitely for the 1950s, not for a modern audience, yeah. I feel like it needed some sort of explanation. I just don't know if I would have chosen a guy who sounds like a TV preacher. Great, great movie. And speaking of TV preacher, how would you sum it up, Neil? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Ha, I watched it for the first time about two or three years ago. At your house, actually. No. Yes, you did watch it at my house. Yeah. I was yeah. amazed you survived it. Yeah, yeah. It was seriously creepy. I mean, I was <laughs> scared stiff at some points. It was really, really, really scary. And then, especially when the um, 
the old lady in the uh, in the window, and that really creeped me out. Yeah, that that was um, yeah, but brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Pick up on what um, <clears throat> Elijah said. Everybody in the film is intelligent, but he makes a mug out of you because you. I was I fell for it, hook yeah, line and sinker absolutely. the first time I saw it, and he misdirects me all the time, and I'm just like, yep, I, I'm following along, and I have no idea. <laughs> I still think it's his mother that did it, even though I know she's dead. You know, it's that well done. (laughs) It was very, very clever, very well put together. I know it's taught at film school as a lesson on how to put things together, and it just shows. And it's what, is it 50 years old, 60 years old? Almost 60 years old. Almost 60 years old, and it, you know, it's still got. Still got me, you know. When he he spun the chair around, I still jumped just great. I had very liberal parents, let me watch it when I was 10. It freaked me out then, and it still freaks me out today. So uh, that's great. I love the way he covers up for his mother. They're very liberal. No, they just didn't like you. They hoped they would finish you off. (laughs) And on that note, Elijah, it's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you, We look forward to catching up with you next month. Actually... That is a horror film I have seen. One of the few, and it's a classic. Why should I watch anything inferior? Jeff, what are you doing with that knife? So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap, and another at the flicks is in the can. Okay, guys, off to get those movie reviews ready. So, it only remains for us to say. Seriously, Jeff, put that knife down and that dress does not suit you. Dress? That's a Welsh nationalist costume. Hopefully there is time for both of you to complete your anger management therapy before the next show. I'm off. (laughs) And to everyone else, thanks Thanks for listening and goodbye. See you next time. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, at theflix.uk and if possible please remember to rate and review at the flicks wherever you get your podcasts you can contact the team on twitter or by email our contact details are also on our website at theflix.uk thanks for listening thanks for listening